when you're in that limelight at Liverpool, it's it's tough. It's very tough because they're the pinnacle as well within club football. You've got to win stuff. And I was lucky enough to go and win the treble the first season. But, you know, it was tough there, you know, because they scrutinised on everything. Even down to when I signed for Liverpool, they scrutinised. Um, I was 22. I was sponsored by Puma. I turned up to the press conference with a Puma hat and a Puma tracksuit on. Bear in mind, I'd never moved from out of Leicester, so I don't know nothing. I'm very naive in that sense anyway. They criticised me for not wearing a suit. I just didn't get the memo. Welcome to the Football Studio, a show where I speak with influential people I look up to in the football industry. I'm Sebastian Alvarado. My goal with these conversations is to get to know the person behind the title. I want to understand how they think, how they got to where they are, and get their personal perspectives and insights on all things life, career, and football. First out is Premier League and England national team legend Emil Heskey. At 17, he made his premiership debut with Leicester. At 22, he moved to Liverpool for a then-record transfer fee. The year after, he scored in England's most epic game to date, the 5-1 against Germany. Often criticized, always questioned, still picked by six different England managers. Today at 42, how does football's misunderstood man, as often labeled by the media, reflect over his journey? That's the question I wanted to ask. Here is my conversation with Emil Heskey. Emil, welcome to the football studio. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Sebastian. How are you, man? Yeah, not too bad. Um, been go- doing well. Um, obviously, now in my new role with Leicester Women's and uh, doing, still doing the punditries. I did um, the weekend's games, which this weekend was Leicester lost against West Ham. And then I did Arsenal beating, actually Sheffield United, Arsenal won. So it was a good weekend of football. But then... Uh, and Liverpool go and get beat uh, 7-2, <laughs> which... Uh, what do you make of that? No one ever saw that coming. Do you know what? It was The funny thing is with the lockdown coming so... And you, you'll know, football's coming so soon after just finishing playing, after the lockdown. Like, they probably had seven days off and then they get back into training and training still isn't... Because you're used to six weeks of solid training with games, etc. Ended up, I think, doing four weeks in total, some doing three. So you're going to, especially now, I think the first four games, five games, you're going to be seeing a lot of mistakes and we're seeing that now. You're seeing high scoring games and I think that's one of the reasons why, because again, you can't even work on a lot in in the in the, in the week. So it's, it's been difficult for some managers. I didn't see that with, with Liverpool. I totally didn't see that with Liverpool. But you see the mistakes and you kind of understand, yeah, people have, have been watching and they're, they're clocking how to actually hit you on the counter-attack and, and exploit certain mistakes that you make. And Villa did it so well, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, like, before I'm going into a new season, we almost always talk about, you know, what are the new trends in the game that we're seeing? What's standing out to you? Unpredictability. <laughs> to be honest with you, no one sees half of the... Uh, especially some of the scores that we see, and no one really sees it. Who saw Everton at the top of the league? <laughs> who saw yeah. who saw Aston Villa three from three? Yeah, you know. So, um, and the funny thing is, even even if if I'm honest with you, when the football came back, I actually saw Aston Villa relegated, but they're not. They didn't get relegated, and now they're sitting pretty at, near the top of the table. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, 
Tell me about the role at um, at Leicester, because last time we spoke, things were put on hold. You had a potential role with the with the Leicester Women's Organization. Uh, it was now now recently announced that you've been brought on board as an ambassador. What exactly does that entail? Well, my ambassador role will be uh, around game time, especially not just for the women's, but for men's as well. And then as well to help with the women's development. I do a little bit of coaching. So on Wednesday, I'll be doing, uh, in a couple of days, I'll be doing some coaching as well. And as well, just mentoring. If, if any of the girls need any help with anything, I've been through a lot when I was playing. So surely I could help out in certain situations when things are possibly good and bad and just help the girls in that way. So I'm there to help out. What's been the most surprising aspect so far? You coming from the outside and stepping into well, this role. Again, it's being accepted in the role. Because again, you never know if you're going to be accepted in the role because... I'm coming from the playing side and now I'm going into the the other side of it, the admin side, and you never know how people are going to take to you, but everyone's taken to me really well. I'm back in the city where I'm from, so the fans are loving that as well. Um, and then obviously I'm on the other side, which is uh, women's football as well, which is developing rapidly. Got some wonderful, wonderful players. We actually recently played against Man City. We lost 2-1, but you, you're talking about playing against the England national team. Nine, nine out of the 11 were, were yeah. national team players. And then the other, uh, I think they had an American national team player and a, and a Scottish international. So it's not it's not bad um, to put yourself up against what you're classing as the best and really putting them on the back foot, which was great. But again, you just got to take it one step at a time and keep pushing. So there's massive, massive um, positives from them games and you just take that step forward. So it's been good. You seem excited, though. I was just about to ask you about your current state of mind, and I see a little more relaxed and yeah. happy and, yeah. and excited. Because I know what I'm doing now. I know what I'm focusing on. I know what I need to do. So, um, And it's excited. Be- I'm excited because, again, it's something new for myself and and something out of the norm for me, which, I'm, which I can learn. Women's football is pretty much the same as men's. We've got the same dilemmas and the same positives, the same negatives. Everything's, everything's more or less the same. So Less diving. You'll be surprised, mate. <laughs> Do you know what? Actually, I would say women's football is tougher in a sense that they just let things go. Referees don't blow up for something. I'm like, wow, that's a that's a foul, isn't it? Play on, play on. I'm like, wow, okay, now I like this. <laughs> it's tough, but it's good. It's good. Yeah, uh, I've also seen that you've done quite a bit of more uh, punditry. Obviously, football being back, um, it's good to see you in in that role. What do you do to get those types of jobs? Well, um, I've got an agency that works for me and they obviously get me a certain jobs, um, especially linked to the clubs that I play for. Um, Like I said, I did Leicester recently. Um, I do Liverpool games um, as well. A few Aston Villa, but not not many Aston Villa, but it's usually Leicester and Liverpool games. So I'll be doing them and it's great. You get to talk about the game, you get to... And as well, now I'm doing my UEFA B licence, so I am actually analysing games a little bit different. Because I'm looking from a, a coaching point of view, as opposed to, to being that striker playing up front with his back to goal. So I'm looking from a different different point of view and how to break this down and low block, high block, uh, getting in between the lines, um, breaking the lines, etc. So yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating to look at things a different way. It's one thing, obviously, discuss football the way you and I are doing right now. What's the most important thing to keep in mind when you do it on TV? probably the most important thing is to actually be clear with your message because me and you can talk as much as we want. We mean, you know, what terminology and certain things that we're trying to, to get across. 
and try to simplify it in a sense for the layman's. Because again, when you're using certain terminology, not everyone's going to know that. Um, but try to simplify it and get them to understand what you're trying to say. Do you ever get nervous sitting there? Um, not anymore. I used to, um, especially when I first did it, because again, I didn't know I'm going into something that was quite new where I know to go and play on the pitch, but to actually go and break it down and talk about it is a totally different thing. And like I said, to uh, uh, to analyse it and talk about it in a certain way that everyone understands what you're talking about is tough. Um and to have fun with it as well. This is one thing that I've, I've learned to have a bit of fun with it. And that's why it's great to have people like uh, doing it with people like Ian, right? You just can't help but to have fun with him. He's just smiling. and He's good. Oh, oh he's brilliant. It's good for someone who's getting into it as well because he'll, yeah. he'll, he'll just calm you down as well because he's got that, you know, when you're just having a bit of fun, everything's calm when you're having fun. What's the latest on? I know last time when we spoke, we spoke quite a bit about the uh, the UEFA Masters course. Mm -hmm. um, what's the latest there? Oh, we're doing it online. We've got a few Zoom calls that we do. Parts of the course, um, it's not finished. I don't think we'll do face to face till next year. Now, it might be January, May, January, February time. I'm not too sure, depending on how all this goes. So yeah, um, yeah we've gone online now. How much you got left? One year. Yeah, so uh, I've got to do my thesis and everything and then uh, present that at the end of, uh, say, I think maybe uh, August next year. And to offer some context, what does the UEFA Masters course entail? When you go into a football club as a player, you showcase your skills. And they say, yeah, you can stay. You can't. You, you maybe give him, give him another couple of years or whatever. So um, I was lucky enough to go to Leicester at nine years old And it was called Centre of Excellence then, but it's an academy system still. And you basically showcase your skill and you you show that you're the best there or one of the best. And they keep and they keep you till a certain age where they feel that uh, you no longer fit their bill. But I was lucky enough to go all the way. So the next step is to, if you want to get into the boardroom or the, or, or the admin side of things, you've got to do the same again because they're not just going to take you off the back of your playing career. And this is the thing that we get stuck on at times. Yeah, we've done a lot of things within football, but when you go into an, a structure or an environment and they'll say to you, what experience do you have? Where have you got, where's your qualification? Where's your this? Well, I played for 30 years. Well, that doesn't really matter. This is totally different. Uh, and this is where this course is helping ex-players get back into administration side of football. Um, it's giving you a, a broader understanding of the running of a football club and different structures, who the stakeholders are, who who does what, where they do it, how they do it. So um, a friend of mine enrolled in it last year and he said it was amazing for him. So um, I actually got the opportunity to enroll in it about three years ago, but I just wasn't ready to, mentally wasn't ready to go back to school. But this time after speaking to my friend, um, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready to try and do this. And it's it's enlightening to go there and listen to the other side of football that you never even dreamt of even thinking about. But it's fascinating. How does it work? Do you apply for it? Do you need an invitation? You need an invitation and you need to apply, obviously. Um, invitation came from actually the, the head of communications at, with the national team, England, got in contact with me first, uh, the first time. And I, I was umming and ahhing and I said, nah, it's not for me right now. Uh, and then a friend of mine, still in Petrov, he did it last year, qualified and everything. And he uh, recommended me. 
And then I had two other recommendations as well. So you're basically recommended by ex-players or or people within establishments. Um, on our course is um, Didier Drogba, Kaka, Maluda, Fadiga, uh, Arshavin, um, Alexis Smertin, Julio Cesar. We've got women footballers as well. Kim Karlström. So yeah, we've got a ton of names that are, that are fabulous and they're, they're doing really well. Fantastic. Um, now it's been roughly four years since you played your, your last professional game. Take me to that moment when you realized that it was, it was time to go. Um, I kind of knew before that, that it was coming to this stage. I believe I could have probably, probably played another one or maybe two years in a lower division. But at that time, you know, when you've got younger lads running around you and you're seeing them doing things going past you or seeing them doing things and then you're thinking, I can't get to that. I, I know what I want to do, but I can't quite get there. I'd have to adjust my game too much. And I thought, well, it's, it's not fair for me to be doing that to my body anyway. So I just thought it was the right time to actually move on and, and look at something different. The funny thing is I didn't know what that something different was. Um, I'd done a little bit of media, but again, getting the opportunity to have a contract within within the media establishment is is not easy. Um, a lot of people have got their head starts on me and and people coming out of football now. So you've got to be headhunted or you've got to really get your head down and graft hard to get to where you want to be. So I looked at different avenues and the UEFA MIP course gave me the opportunity to actually look at things differently and, and possibly go into a football club in a different capacity rather than just being a coach. Uh, when you come out of football, everyone just says, go and get your badges and be a coach. But what if you don't want to be a coach? What's the next, what's the other thing that I can do? And no one really looks at that. I know the Prem, I think the FA and the PFA are doing some good things around um, sports management and, and administration and stuff like that and sports directorship. I know they're doing some really good things around that. So people are looking at things differently now rather than just being a coach. And it's quite needed. I mean, you're one of them who's talked quite extensively about, you know, footballers not being prepared for life after football. Yeah, look, um, I look at some players now and I and I remember when some I was training with some of them and, and I look at them now and you're looking at them, they're 34, they're 35 and I'm thinking, have you, have you thought about it? Have you even, has it even crossed your mind what you're actually going to be doing when you finish. And this is where I think the American system within their sports are possibly better mm. because you've got a schooling alongside it. You've got an education alongside your, alongside your sports. Whereas in England, it's just, you got, you're kind of taken away from your education and put there and you stay there. I finished school at 16 and played football. What education? I've, I've got nothing past 16. <laughs> you know, so it's important that People look at things differently as well for themselves because unless you're looking at it for yourself, no one else is going to look at it for you. They'll be happy for you not to worry about your education and just be doing well at football. Yeah. And I mean, it's a necessary investment. Uh, 100%. Because footballers, I mean, and if you want to be crass about it, are very much a commodity. And yeah. uh, you've even said that football is the only job where you're in it for 25 years and then it gets to a point and you're told you don't have the qualifications and you're out. <laughs> it's crazy. You cannot do a job for 20, 
I did, I played for 21 years. You cannot do a job for 21 years and then them tell you, oh, you don't know, you don't have the, you don't have the qualification, you don't have the know-how. But I've just played for 21 years. Yeah, but that's totally different. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's the only industry where you actually go in for 21 years and you come out with no qualifications and no know-how. Yeah, yeah, which is quite... <laughs> Let's just say unique. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so having been 21 year career, which is because uh, a lot of people don't last for that long, you've been in the spotlight pretty much since you were you know, 17, maybe even earlier. What is that moment like when you realize that, that the spotlight is gone? It was, you know, I went to um, Australia and uh, that was a, a refreshing move, to be honest with you, because you got to remember, I've been in, like you're saying, from the age of 17, I've been in the spotlight. And then at 34, I went to Australia. You go to Australia and yes, people recognize you in a sense of when you're there at the stadium and stuff like that, but around the town, no one knows who you are, no one cares, which was wonderful. Because you're in this bubble in um, in in England where everyone's judging you and everyone's looking at you and what you're wearing, what house you're in, what what trainers you're wearing, what car you're driving, then they're there to criticise you about all of that. Whereas in Australia, they don't care. They don't care about you. You just carry on with your life. Let me carry on with mine. So that was quite refreshing. But then, once you're out of that spotlight, if you try to get back into it in 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 a sense of doing media work or doing anything, it's very tough. Again, because you're not in that, you're not in that bubble, you're not in that anymore. So you've got to fight your way back into it. So I've been lucky enough, like you're saying, for four years, I've been trying to get my little bits um, in the media and I'm hopefully doing okay. Um, uh, I do a little bit with the, with the, with Sky. I do uh, now and again, I'll do a bit of BBC, but it more be radio. So yeah, I've been, I've been trying to keep myself busy and keep myself in the loop. But like I say, it's difficult when you come out of it. Do people take you seriously today? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, you, you have, what is it called? It's elevator pitch. You have, you have a couple of minutes to, to get people to take you seriously. So you have your things in your mind that you can actually speak to. And, and when, pe- when, when people uh, sit down and speak to me or have a conversation with me, they realize, that, well, yeah, actually, he knows what he's talking about. Oh, oh I didn't think of that one. Yeah, that's, that's true, that. But, you know, just having an open conversation with some people sometimes, they, 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 then they understand. Because what you've got to remember, we've been told for years that footballers are stupid. That's just a perception. With all due respect, we hear these all the time, these stereotypes. I hear them all the time because I'm a black person. So we hear all these stereotypes all the time. So to say for all football, oh, footballers are stupid. You know, until you actually sit down with someone and, and, and discuss certain things with them, you know, you won't know what they're, what they're about. That's interesting what you said. You know, you hear it because you're a black person. Um, I remember our conversation from, from last summer <laughs> and uh, we got into that conversation. Um, elaborate on that. I would say it changed over the years. So when you look at, um, I was born in 78. So when you look at um, uh, the likes of Brendan Batson, uh, Laurie Cunningham, uh, Sil Regis, Dwight York, Andy Cole, Ian Wright, all pacey, either pacey forwards or playing down the wing or something like that. So over the years, it kind of changed a little bit because it changed people's perception on black players that they couldn't play in midfield. Someone had to come along, do a good job, and they say, oh, well, oh, yeah, they can play there. And this is the perception we have at times. 
our black players are only good to play up front and battering ram and do this and jump on. And this is the perception we have with black people and black players. So, so we have to deal with that sort of stuff. And, you, you know, I grew up watching footballers play. Um, Ian Wright, uh, like I said, I named, I named a, a ton of them. John Barnes was one of my favourites. You know, where's the next step? When you're watching them and playing, you're saying you want to emulate them. But when you when you've seen them not going any further than the football pitch, you're thinking, well, where where do, where can I go now then? And this is where we've, as the next generation, have probably got to take the next step. I think Les has done it now. Les Ferdinand, who's a director of football, um, so he's taken that next step and being up the, the having the opportunity to take that next step and 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 striving to be the next person of color to be in them top them top, top roles, you know, I think is what some, it's so much like 2% or 3% of coaches or managers are, are black. Yet you go to yeah. the, especially in the youth development within England, it, it's as high as 70% that the kids are black. And I'll be honest with you, if you go to a lot of the academies now, there'll be maximum two co- black coaches throughout the whole academy. But until you see a problem... You won't address the problem. But no one will ever see a problem because no one can see it from my eyes. I was speaking to someone recently about it and they was talking about um, these chants and people asking about this and asking about that. And I said, well, what do you know about racism? Well, I said, well, what, what, what do you know about racism? I'm a 42-year-old ma- black man. I know about racism. I've been chased. I've been done this. I've been harassed. I've been... Uh, uh, it's funny because I got chased from the same stadium which I was going to play in eventually by the same fans who supported that that team. So now, uh, what can you tell me about that? Well, why are you why are you even the front and center of it? That if if you're not if you can't tell me anything about it, if you don't know the feeling, if you don't know anything about it, you can't tell me anything about it. Why are you not getting people that can actually tell you about it? That can actually tell you what it feels, how it feels what you should be actually doing to combat it, how you should combat it. If you're not, if you're not bringing the people on board who are suffering from it, what's the point? Yeah, but like you said, I mean, it, it still exists and there is very much of a, of a structural issue as well. What do we do to actually change it? Which is the question that I feel like, you know. The main question is, do you want it to change? And asking the, the right people, do you want it to change? And then when you get the answer from them, then you give them the you 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 tell them what they need to do. And then they'll come back to you and say, Well, we can't do that. Well, you don't want it to change then, do you? Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. It's it's not rocket science. If you've got if you if you've got a problem in your household with uh, I don't know, high blood pressure or sugar or whatever, diabetes or whatever it is, you change the diet in your house and you're telling people you're doing this. That's it. I'm changing it. That's that's what we need to do because we're going to change this and we're going to get the good results. And then once you get, get, start getting results, you see, there you go. Yeah. Everyone's got an excuse to keep things the same. The question is asking the right people, do you want the change? If you want the change, let's do it. If you don't, then we'll just move on. But don't, you can't keep fobbing people off and saying, yeah, we're talking about it. We're just, yeah, we're implementing this. It's 30 years. <laughs> I played for 21 years. <laughs> You know, we still haven't had the change in managers. We haven't had more managers than when I started. I think it's more or less the same. Yeah, and it might benefit certain people to maintain the status quo and protect their positions. 
look, everyone will protect their positions. I understand that. Um, that's just human nature. Um, but if you really want change, if you're if you're looking at a problem and you really want change, then there are there's so many different things you can do. But if you don't want change, we can just keep it the way we are and just keep trundling on. In another thirty years, we might have four percent black managers or five percent black managers. But that's a that's a progression, isn't it? In some people's eyes. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh... Well, the thing is, they they brought in the Rooney Rule, and I thought this was quite good. Um, at the end of the day, all you've done with the Rooney Rule is widened your net. Well, the Rooney Rule is they have to interview a certain number of um, coaches from a BAME background, Black, Asian, uh, minority, ethnic. So all you've done is just casted your, your net a bit wider. You're still not going to... You're not going to... Um, if I If I'm coming to the interview and I do a bad job in the interview, you're not going to hire me. And I understand that. But at least now, if I do a good job, you've got a, another person that you generally wouldn't have had. So you've actually got a bigger pool to choose from now. Just to shift a little bit, I want to rewind the tape and uh, touch on your background. As you said, you were born in 1978. Um, in order to get to know you on a more personal level, how would you describe your upbringing? Caribbean. <laughs> what does yeah. that mean? Very strict, fun, uh, games, athletics, sports, dominoes, local pub, which is obviously where we all gathered on a certain days and had parties and stuff like that. It was it was just typical Caribbean upbringing, but in England. You know, I used to go to, every year to the Caribbean, to Antigua, and stay there for six weeks during the summer holidays. But it was exactly the same, just that you had the sun. Food was the same. You get the same jokes. Yeah, and I know you're big into music. Yeah. And the food. Yeah, look, I think that's part of um, the black culture, to be honest with you. There's certain tunes when you're actually at a christening or at a dance or something like that, and there's certain music that has to be played. And these are the ones that just bring back memories like that and you just you can pinpoint a moment in your life where you was and where that was being played and it was just pure jokes and what were the tunes do you remember a lot of them were calypso tunes soca tunes one of them was like five was it cent five cent ten cent dollar if you can find that and you play that for any caribbean person he'll start looking at you and saying well, what do you know about that tune it is an iconic tune because it gets played everywhere every event that you have that tune will be getting played What did your uh, parents do for a living? My dad worked at the... Do you ever remember the car manufacturer Rover? No. No. He's a British man, car manufacturer. He worked at the factory in Leicestershire. And my mum worked in the hosiery industry, so just making clothes. And then my dad was uh, a doorman as well, so he worked at the nightclubs, um, ran a lot of the doors in and around Leicester. In talking about your career a little bit, you came up through the ranks of Leicester from a very young age. What was the most defining moment for you that really shaped the future? I was 15 and uh, we were playing a, I don't know if it was an FA Youth or something along them lines, under 18s. So they called me up. I was on the bench. We were losing 1-0. And I just remember, I think I come on before halftime because we were 1-0 down. He just wasn't happy with, the, with the, how the game was going. 1-0 down, come on, scored two, coming at halftime. 
The manager was effing and blinding, blah, blah, blah. You let this little man, this young man here, blah, blah, blah. Come and save your... Get out there. And so we went out for the second half. Um, we won the game 2-1. I actually got injured in the second half, came off. But yeah, that's what made me, to be honest. I've come on, save that game, and it just went on from strength to strength. At 16, I was playing regularly for the under-18s. At 16 as well, in pre-season, I played a first-team game. I think it was Notts County away. And I made my debut the following following year at 17. And that's obviously at a very young age. And, uh, you know, 17-year-olds today, they have no concept of what professional football was like back then. No. Can you describe that for the kids of today? It's possibly the same as what they have now, but you were allowed to tackle any which way you wanted to. But it's funny because I watched back the uh, England v Germany game with Michael Owen recently. And one of my tackles, I thought, oof, that's a red card. I, think, I got yellow for it. But I'm thinking, oh, that's a red card. That, that's a bad challenge. <laughs> but you were allowed to get away with certain challenges. You Back in the day, you were allowed at least one free hit on someone. And then the next one after that, you might get a yellow card. And that was what football was about, to be honest. It was fairly dangerous. You catch the person the wrong way, you're breaking his leg. Was that a thing for you to always get that good first hit in? Sometimes, yeah. It sets the tone of the game. And the game you were just referring to that you watched with Michael Owen, that's obviously the 5-1. Yes, so we watched it recently for a podcast. I think it was something to do with England, the national team. So we watched it together. Obviously, Michael scored three and I got the, I got the last one. So great memories. Unbelievable memories. Is that kind of the most memorable national team game that you've had? I think it's one of the most memorable games. The funny thing is, when, wherever I go and you meet England fans or people that remember that game, they come up to you, thank you, and say, I remember exactly where I was when that game was being played. So it's one of those memorable games that everyone knows exactly where they were. I remember speaking to one fan, he was saying, yeah, it was my birthday and this. I could never forget that game. When you scored that goal, I was all over the living room, blah, blah. I had all my mates with me from school. And I'm like, oh, wow. And then there was another guy that says, Yeah, um, I remember watching it with my dad. Uh, when we went 1-0 down, he just effing and blinding and left and went to the pub, never watched the game. <laughs> so little everyone remembers exactly where they were when that game was being played. Yeah, that's right, because that's one of those games. It could have gone the other way around. They were on you in the first 10-15 minutes. I think they should have been 2-0 up after about 10 minutes. They scored one in after seven minutes. But then obviously you ride that wave and you you come back. Do you remember the day when you first heard that Liverpool were in interested in signing you? That interest had, had been there for a while, to be honest with you. I think I left when I was 22. So I'd been there for about four years, actually. I was at Leicester and I just wanted to show what I was capable of doing and, what, and be a regular with Leicester and win something with Leicester. So that was the reason why I stayed for them periods. When it got to winning the last League Cup that we won, I said to myself, what's the next step? Where can I go? And the next step was a bigger club. No disrespect to Leicester, it's my hometown club. If there was no Leicester, there was no me. But I had to think about myself and say, well, what's next for me? And it was um, taking that next step up to Liverpool. I wanted the opportunity to try and, and have a go at winning the league. And that was going to be with Liverpool. And you were their uh, record signing at the time. I believe it was somewhere in the 11 to 12 million pounds, which was obviously a huge sum back then. Being such a young, I mean, still a kid, you were 22. How do you cope with that? 
and that's the thing, no, but not many people realize that I was still, yeah, like you're saying, I was still 22. I'm, I'm a child. Um, how do you cope with that? It didn't affect me until people kept talking about it. Like uh, Lukaku. Lukaku doesn't care about his price tag. He just wants to play the game. He just wants to enjoy his football. But when you keep putting that in his in his head, keep telling him all this and that, oh, he's, he's been bought for 80-something million. He's, oh, he's not that. Oh, he's not this. Oh, he's not that. Oh, it's too much negativity around the, some of the top clubs. Um, I never once thought about my price tag. Never once. It was only when people kept on telling you about it that you're like, oh, yeah, oh, oh yeah, went for 11 million. It wasn't nothing to do with me. It actually wasn't anything to do with me. It was the two clubs who agreed that term. I've got to go then. I just wanted to play the football and I was ready to play the football. So the first season, I, it didn't bother me having that price tag and people talking about it. But then after a while, you know, it just seeps into you and everyone keeps talking about a price tag, a price tag, a price tag. It's got nothing to do with me, a price tag. Let, just let me play my game. Describe that initial period at Liverpool, because I understand it wasn't easy at all times. The football was great. The football was good. I enjoyed it. But again, it boils down to me being away from my, my norms. I was still living at my parents' house. I even though I'd moved out, but I hadn't moved out. So I was still around the corner from my parents. I still had all them home comforts around. Then I'm moving to another city. That city could have been in another country. It didn't really matter, but it was another city. And I didn't deal with it too well if I'm honest with you how did it express itself because you described it as as a form of anxiety yeah I I would be at training and I'll be fine I'd be having a barrel of laughs it'd be jokes it'd be good fun I'd be loving it because I'm I'm doing what I want to do then I'd go home and I the simplest thing of things would get you down I can't find a haircut I don't know where I don't know where the shop is and people might listen to this and say, well, you got this is before Google. This is before all these things. So you, you basically got a roadmap out <laughs> and, and tried to find things or you just drove around. And I wasn't that much of an outgoing person like that. So I'd just stay at home. Uh, I remember one time, the first time was I just laid on the floor and I was thinking whether I actually did the right, did the right thing or not in moving. I've gone to the biggest club in the world. And I'm wondering if I'd, I've done the right thing or not. Um, it was the right thing, but I just hadn't dealt with the fact of moving out of my comfort zone and, get, and being out of my comfort zone in that sense. Dealing with those types of feelings, what did it do to you? The thing is, it never did anything to me on the pitch. I, w I was able to, to have a football life and then my, my, my uh, off-field life as well, different. And it was weird because I'd go from being this happy and joyous and then being off field. And I had kids at that time as well. And and it just wasn't, it wasn't great in a sense that I wasn't dealing with it right. But I, it, in, in essence, it made me grow up because I had to come out of that, uh, that, that little mood that I had, not mood, but that little uh, like you're saying, anxiety that I had about being out of Leicester. I'd never been out of Leicester, really. And in addition to that, like you just said, I mean, being being a father also at that young age, because you, you had, a, I believe you had two kids already at the time, right? Yeah, I'd, I had two kids. Um, I had three kids by the age of 24. Um, so yeah, I was, I, I, had, yeah, I had three kids 
two kids by that time, by by the time I'd moved to 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 Liverpool. Yeah, 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 two kids. Yeah, no, I, had a, I had a newborn, actually, by the time I'd moved to Liverpool. What kind of a father were you back then? I wouldn't say a great one. Because football takes you away from a lot of things, and especially, especially as a as a young lad, football takes you away. So my days with foot and being a footballer, um, I would be in, I'd be in a hotel. You, you, you with especially with Liverpool, you're in a hotel day before a game. Um, so you're in a hotel three, four days a week, three days a week, four days a week, and then the rest of the time you're trying to rest to get ready to go and train again. So you're not really doing anything or being around them. Um, when I look at what I what I do um, with my kids now, in a sense of I pick them up from school, got to take them here, going to take them there, going to do training, and then bring them back and this and get them food prepared and help help out with this. And it's it was nothing like that back then. It was more just focus, focus, focus on football. And this is where people ask me. Would I would would they, would you advise people to have kids early on in their in their football career? Probably not, because you you're you're very selfish, very selfish. Of all the moments that you had with Liverpool, which one is the one that fulfilled you the most? Do you know the funny thing is? I would say, I would possibly say the FA Cup. The FA Cup is huge, especially in England for English players. Um, it's the cup that, especially when I was growing up, you could only watch that on on, on terrestrial TV. Um, we didn't have all them, we didn't have skies and all that back then. So you could only see football when the FA Cup come on. So that was hugely important to win the FA Cup. So to win that and the manner that we did was amazing. Um, the UEFA Cup, I didn't, I, 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 I say even say it now, and people ask me about it. I don't really remember. I never really remember. I had to I had to watch it back to remember it, because it was just it was like sixty fifth game or sixty something game or my fifty ninth game. I just mentally gone. So uh, I would say the FA Cup. We have to call it the Michael Owen FA Cup because he won us that. Yeah, and we were playing against a really really good Arsenal side, who, if I'm honest, should have won the game, should have seen the game off. Um, but once you stay in the that game, that was quite a team they had. Oh yeah, they were amazing. Henri is something special. Um, but they had a, they had a special team. They did, um, you know. And you see the you see all the the fans, uh, seventy thousand fans in a stadium. It was just an amazing atmosphere. They they controlled large parts of the game. But like I said, once you got Michael Owen on your side, you got half a chance because uh, yes, he might not he might not. Um, being all, all, all action in the game, but there's a time where he's gonna where he's gonna pull something out the bag, and he did, with two great finishes, two instinctive finishes as well. Yeah, and the two of you formed a quite special partnership. Yeah, I think I think it was it was just something that just clicked straight away. We played together from a young youth, the youth national teams. So I was 18, he was 16. He would have played. With, he played with our team, and he was outstanding. You know, even back then, he was he was probably the best player there as well. Um, just so dynamic, so so quick, was an amazing finisher. Give him half a chance; he's going to finish it. You know, he was he was he was great in that sense, and we just felt, formed a great partnership. He understood what I wanted; I understood what he wanted. His strengths complements complemented my weaknesses. My strength complement complemented his weaknesses. So it just it was just a it was just a great blend. 
What's the question that you get the most about your Liverpool career? Why did you leave? <laughs> yeah, why did you leave? Um, the thing was, I left. Um, the reason I left was the then CEO or chairman or whatever you want to call it um, said they'd accepted a bid from Birmingham. You're allowed to go and speak to them. I said, that's fine. I'm cool with that. Uh, let's go speak. But I'm more than happy to stay and fight for my place. Well, you know, you're not going to fight for your place because you're not going to play. Cissé is coming in and he'll play. I said, okay, well, when you hear that, you got to move on because if you haven't got a chance of fighting for your place, what's the point in being there? How does that make you feel? I was actually fine with it. I was actually fine with it. I'd rather them say that than fob me off with, yeah, you can fight for your place and knowing that you're never going to get a chance. That is the worst. I've seen it a couple of times where, um, actually later on in my career, where um, I had the opportunity to go back to Leicester. And um, the manager said, no, no, we need you. And I never played again. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> I believe you said, in essence, I didn't want to leave Liverpool, but I needed to leave. If I'd stay, I don't yeah. know if I would have been the same person. What do you mean by that? It's because if I'd have stayed and not played, yeah, I'd have been at a big club, but I'm not playing. Would it have taken up? Would it have taken more out of myself? I had to go out and play. I had to go out and express myself. I have to go out and show who I am. If I'm just sat on the bench, yes, I'm a Liverpool player though. That's nothing. That's rubbish. That's rubbish. These people that just sit there and say, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a so and so player," but no, you need to go out and express yourself. You need to go and show what you can do, whether it be a bit lower down or on par, wherever it is. Just show what you can show what you can do. Now I went to Birmingham. And it was tough because I'd gone from playing with Stevie G, Michael, Gary McAllister, Danny Murphy, Paddy Burgers, and making a run and you just, you get the ball straight away. They've already seen you made your run to playing with other players that haven't got that confidence, haven't got that ability. So you're making runs and no one's even looked at you. Now, uh, I had to change myself, my own thinking in that sense. How'd you do that? I had to work on myself, but I, it was good for me. Because it gave me back my confidence in the self, in the sense that, yeah, I'm I'm doing the right thing. I'm I'm playing for myself. I'm playing for for a meal now. I want to touch just a little bit on the national team. Of all the moments that you've had there, what's that one story you'll tell your grandchildren about? It would have to be the England five one, wouldn't it? The funny thing is, I've got the video and everything. I've got the DVD, so uh, it's something that you probably I probably have to sit down with them and watch it. And what would you tell them about it? And just to put it within context, I believe you had lost at Wembley. You're coming into this game, Germany being huge favourites. Take me through that. Well, the thing is, we'd lost the last game at the old Wembley. The old Wembley, obviously iconic. And we lose the last game there against the Germans. Didi Harman, a free kick. So that didn't sit too well. You know, the Germans are always the arch, arch enemy. And we were, we were up against it. At the end of the day, it was Sven Goranelson's um, first competitive game. So it was important for him as well. And, you know, we ended up being 1-0 down after seven minutes. <laughs> Which doesn't sit too well and doesn't bow too well when you're trying to win a game in a stadium where the, the home team haven't lost in, I think it was close to 60, 60 games. And uh, we were 1-0 down. 
But we had a, we had a good team. We had a good camaraderie. You know when just everything clicks, and it's hard to explain that to certain people. There's certain games where everything just goes for you, and that was one of those games. And when you look at it, we we, we scored at the right times as well. Um, I think we ended up being two one at halftime. We scored just on on the verge of halftime. So going in, we've got their mental edge, and then. You know, it was just amazing the second half that, uh, you know, we ended up, I topped off and made it five. It was just an iconic game. How would you describe uh, Sven Goran Eriksson? I like Sven. He was very calm. Had this mellow attitude. Uh, possibly needed someone to be that uh, yin to his yang. But I quite liked him in a sense that when you went on a pitch with his instructions, you knew everything. And I quite liked that. Years ago, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have cared too much about that sort, that sort of information because I would have been thinking more about myself. But when you're thinking about a team and the team, that uh, you need a lot of information, and and he gave you a hell of a lot of information, so you knew exactly what was who he was coming up against. Obviously, that team was the you know the golden generation. You you had Lampard, Gerrard, Beckham, yourself, Owen, Scholes, and you name it. Um, far more impressive on paper than even the recent 2018 World Cup team. Um, why didn't it happen for you? Good question. I think our qualifications were always good. It was just the it's just the tournaments that we never quite nailed it. But in saying that, we had we were up against uh, the likes of France. Let's look at let's look at France. I always say this now. Look at France. My age group for France is um, Trezeguet, Henri, Anelka. Usman Darbo, William Gallas, uh, Silvestre. Uh, there was a Cisse, but he played for West Ham. Um, Sanyol, I think his name was Sanyol, played for... Bayern Munich. Yeah. But then you... So I've just named eight there. Then you add in Zidane, Pires, Vieira, uh, Lizarazu, Bartes, uh, Desai, Makalele. When you add in all them, who's who's really got the golden generation? And theirs actually clicked and gelled better than ours. Is there anything that that team could have done differently at the 2002 World Cup? Um, probably not being drawn against Brazil would have been better. <laughs> when you get drawn against Brazil and you've got Rivaldo, Ronaldo and Ronaldinho up front, it's not really looking great, is it? But no, I think I, even when we went 1-0 up, I think we sat back after that. I think if we didn't sit back and we actually put ourselves on the front foot and had a go, I think that might have been better a better better way of going about it. But, you know, who knows? It's ifs, buts and maybes, isn't it? Yeah. When talking about the national team, especially around big tournaments, the English media has a big role in that. How do you describe their role and kind of the pressure that it creates to someone who has no concept of it? Well, it just has a negative effect on everyone. I think the nation, everyone, because it, it just surrounds everyone with negativity. Now, when you look at um, when they got to the semis, there was no expectations. No one said anything, oh, they must do this, or they're going to do this, and they're going to do that. No, there was no expectation. So they just went out and performed. Um went out and performed without any pressure on them. Well, when you put the pressure on them and saying they must do this or they, they, they shouldn't come home or they must do this or they're a failure, they're not nice words to even see and to even think about when you're going onto a football pitch. 
And if any footballer tells you that they're not thinking about them sort of things when they go on the football, they're lying. Of course you are. You're your own worst enemy anyway because it's your own negative thoughts that hold you back as a player anyway. But then you hear other people's negative thoughts on top of that. You're like, oh, you don't want to play oftentimes. Try to describe that feeling. I mean, people in general and fans in particular know you guys are getting a lot of pressure, but from a human side, how does it feel? The thing is, from a human side, you can go to a training ground and watch any player play. And you're like, oh, he's amazing. And why is he not playing? Oh, he's, he's brilliant. Look at him. Why is he not doing this? Why didn't he do that in the game? Because there's no pressure. There's no pressure at all to go out there and perform on a training pitch. I've seen them so many times. You, talk, you call them training ground players. That when you see them, they're amazing. But then when, you, when, it actually, when it needs to matter, they're not there. They can't produce it. They tense up. They just can't produce that when the pressure's on. And this is the problem, I'm guessing, with our national team. And it was, you know, it was horrible at times. <laughs> it was horrible at times. Media was horrible to certain people um, and certain players, you know. And you just got to go out and perform. You had to take it on the chin and go and perform. If you didn't perform, you're getting more than that. And if you did perform, it was what you should do. So it's a kind of a lose-lose <laughs> situation. Um, but I, but there was a, at the time I'm guessing um, there was a there was a I wouldn't say there was an agenda. You got to remember the, the the years when it was really good mid '90s. The press used to travel and press were with the players, and then for some reason that stopped. So you stop that, and next minute I can't get near you, and I I'm going to backlash and I'm going to cause all sorts of negativity around it, and that was what was going on. Uh, one of the things that I didn't think was necessary at times, as an England squad, we'd have the newspapers with us in our meeting rooms or in, in where we were eating, with all that negativity all across the back. And you're thinking, why would you do that? Why don't you just keep us away from all that? We don't hear it. We don't see it. We just get on with our lives. There's almost not an interview where you are not asked about the criticism that you've endured. Mm -hmm. You know, we see the typical headlines such as, you know, football's misunderstood man, silencing the critics. At what point do you get tired of constantly be answering those types of questions? The thing is, I, I got tired during my career, but it, it was weird because even, even when we went to the World Cups and stuff like that, and I, and I would say when, with the national team, I was saying, why are you putting me in front of these people? Like, no, no, you've got to do your duty. And I said, yeah, but you're putting me in front of them and they're asking me the same question. I'm answering them, but they're, put, they're writing what they want to write. So just let them write what they want to write and, and I can keep my half an hour to an hour to myself that I was supposed to do with them. Because inevitably, it's just negative stuff that they're writing. No, you've got to do it. But they just didn't understand what, how, where I was coming from when it comes to the, to the, to the media. Um, so I just I just answered them, did what I have to do, and I moved on. I never, it didn't. I didn't let it get to me because the thing was, a lot of them, it was getting to them that I was still in the squads. I'm thinking, why is it getting to you that I'm in the squads? Lucky that you're not picking the squads. Oh, I wouldn't be here. But whoever was the actual manager was was always picking me. So that means you're doing something right. Yeah, and I mean, to put it into some perspective, I believe it's about six England managers who picked you. Yeah, 
So they're all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've seen a bunch of interviews throughout the years and you seem to have handled it pretty well and, and you're kind of able to put it into perspective. But what's a moment when the critique really got to you? Um, when you're in that limelight at Liverpool, it's, it's tough. It's very tough. You know, because um, they're the pinnacle as well within, within club football. You've got to win stuff. And I was lucky enough to go and win the treble the first season. I think I finished second in the in the second season or something like that. Um, went to the quarterfinals in the Champions League in the second season. I thought, still thought we should have at least got to the semis. But, you know, it was tough there, you know, because they scrutinised on everything. I, even down to when I signed for Liverpool, they scrutinised. Um, I was 22. I was sponsored by Puma. I turned up to the press conference with a Puma hat and a Puma tracksuit on. Bear in mind, I'd never moved from out of Leicester, so I don't know nothing. I'm very naive in that sense anyway. And they criticised me for not wearing a suit. I just didn't get the memo. <laughs> I, just, I just didn't get... No one, the thing is now, if my agent had said, get, make sure you got a suit on, or the club would have said, make sure you got a suit on, I'd have wore a suit. No problem. But I just didn't get it. So uh, you get criticised for that, and then you get criticised for this, wearing your hair this way, you're doing this... Oh, it's just OTT when you're at the top. Everything is scrutinised. And yeah, it was tough that time. Even with the national team, it was tough at times, you know. But that was possibly one of the toughest. Did that ever kind of express itself in your private life? Uh, you'd have to ask my ex about that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, if I'm honest with you. Um, it probably wasn't great for my private life. Um yeah, it probably wasn't great for my private life, but I, I'd probably shut all that off of my memory. And in English football, I mean, there's been several players, you know, that are constantly criticized and, and have been criticized throughout the years. Among them, just a few names that come to mind would be like like an Ashley Cole, Raheem more, more recently. You're criticizing our best ever left back. If you're criticizing the third, fourth, fifth best, you're like, okay, cool. But you're criticizing our best ever left back. Ever. You're criticising someone who's won several trophies. Several trophies. You're criticising someone who, the best player in the world, arguably, has said he's the, the player that he found most difficult to play against. You're criticising that man. It doesn't make sense. I, I, regardless of what people will say, there was something personal behind his attack. There was no reason. Yeah, and in more recent years, even you have somebody like you know Raheem, in the past, obviously, you had yourself, perhaps even Saul Campbell. Even with Raheem's one, now, you're looking at Raheem and they, they're criticising Raheem for what? It's really petty stuff. Oh, he, he bought his mum a house. So what? It's got nothing to do with you. Um, there was one weird one, like he was eating fried chicken in his car. Yeah. But it's his car. And he's just paid for the fried chicken. So whack. <laughs> is there a pattern? I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. but There is. Um, but it's, I think a lot of his unconscious... So recently, there's um, there's been a thing recently on Instagram. You know, a lot of people, because we're all on lockdown, a lot of people going live. And you got this guy, Tory Lanez, uh, who's a rapper, doing um, twerk off. And a couple of the players apparently have been on his live and they've commented. So the newspapers put these players have been commenting on his thingy, um, blah, blah, blah. And obviously, people saying it's immoral to be doing that on that guy's live. And why are you even watching it? So they've picked out, I think it was Rashford, uh, Sancho and Carl Walker. Yet people have actually pointed out Jack Wilshere was on there and McTominay was on there. 
<laughs> so why haven't their names cropped up on this in, on this scandal? So I think there's an un- unconscious bias when it comes to um, printing certain things. What does that mean, that unconscious bias? Um, you'll forget when it's someone who favours you or looks more like you, you'll forget certain things. But when it's someone who's not of your, uh, who doesn't look like you or you don't kind of have the uh, connection with, you will focus more on them. And it could be colour, it can be anything. It could be race, it could be anything. Uh, culture and uh, religion, it could be religion. We've seen it. We've seen it with... Um, what is it called? The uh, Muslim bombers and saying this about Muslim bombers, but we all know it's just not Muslim people who are terrorists. But we'll continue to push that narrative. You published an autobiography fairly recently in, in September of last year titled Even Heskey Scored. What has that experience been like? It was great. It was um, it was so good looking back at my career, and because I've never done it, I've never looked at back, back at my career and, and, and pinpointed certain moments and and looked at certain games and stuff like that. Because do you ever remember the game Bergkamp scored against Leicester for uh, three goals? It was one of the best hat tricks ever to be scored in the Premier League. Yeah, the one where pretty much every goal I think was like a goal of the year candidate or something. Yeah, exactly. So I played in that game and I actually forgot that I scored. Because all I can remember is Bergkamp scoring that crazy hat-trick. And I scored in the game. <laughs> it was a memorable game. It's, it's one, of the, um, one of the games that they highlight on Sky and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was an amazing game. What was it that made you decide to uh, publish an autobiography? The thing was, I kept on bumping into people and people asking, you know, oh, yeah, this game and that game and blah, blah, blah. Every fan, uh, whether it be Liverpool, Leicester, um, Wigan, uh, Bolton, Birmingham, Villa, whoever, everyone remembers a certain game. And you start sitting there and talking to them about it and having a little discussion and blah, blah, blah. And, it, and it's and it's actually enlightening to hear fans talk talk back to you about it and then them hearing your perspe- uh, perspective of it. Then they're saying to you, when you're going to do a biography, you should get all this out, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, blah, whatever. After hearing that so many times, you're like, I think it's about time. I think it's about time I, I probably did put something down. And Darius Vassell had just finished one, uh, sent me his, I had a look at it and everything. And he, and he says, oh, I'll get this is the guy who did it. Here's his number. Have a little word. And it was funny because we actually went to the same same junior school. Um, he's from Leicester, um, lived not far from where I used to live. And we went to the same junior school. So everything just clicked well. And I wanted to, the th- funny thing is like you spoke to, when you spoke to me earlier about um, myself, how I see myself as a little bit weird. I just wanted to get that point, point across as well, because it's not just about football, it's about me as well. You know, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not as outgoing as people might think. Um, you know, uh, yes, I like to go out, but in general, I'll have to be drag, uh, dragged out rather than actually being wanting to go out all the time. And... It's, it, people, fi- people find that very funny and very weird that I'm happy to just sit here and, on my own and just watch people and, and be happy with that. Um, but I'm happy within myself, to be honest. Do you think a lot about yourself and reflect over who you've become today? Yeah, now I do, yeah. I never did when I was playing, but now I do. What are those thoughts that go through your head? The thoughts are, who am I? 
who am I? What do I want to do? What, what am I bringing to this planet, really? Um, who are you? Good question. I believe that I'm a motivated leader in myself. I'm an honest person. I'm a hardworking person. And I like to work for the people. Um, a friend of mine says, you, you put people um, before you too much and you don't know how to say no. And it's funny because he says, uh, he, he always quotes me and he gets it right. He says something like, you don't know the power of your yes until you say no. I can never say no. What do you do to um, keep evolving yourself? Is there anything concrete that you do on a daily basis? I've gotten into meditation. I have a, um, a coach at this moment in time who's helping me personally. His name's Io Benson. He's got a book out at the minute. The Power of the Mind, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're working on some stuff that way. Because a lot of the time you're told certain things and you're told how to think, you're told that you can't do this and you're told how to do things and you limit yourself. Whereas in order for me to get to where I was within football, there had to be no limits. So there should be no limits in anything else that you want to do. How does that work? Like, do you guys sit down for specific sessions where he asks you questions? Like, how does he guide you through that? Yeah, we sit down and we go through certain things. Um, A lot of it's on Skype and um, FaceTime and stuff like that. So we go through a lot of things and it's just working through things, isn't it? Understanding how, how did I get to, how did you get to play football? How did I get to play football? How did he get to play football? What have we got in common? How do, what are our traits? What, are we, what can we learn? What can we take from this into that? What can we learn from these people who got to here? And it's just applying a lot, a, a lot of it. Can we learn languages at, at 42? <laughs> I don't know. Skulls. And Skulls gets forward. He's got Heskey on for the pass. England are in again. It's Emil Heskey! All right, so we're getting to the end here. I'll just shoot a set of uh, kind of rapid-fire questions. If there's anything you, you need to elaborate on, feel free to do so. Um, what advice would you give your 20- and your 30-year-old self? 20-year-old um, self, I'll probably give two. Uh, believe in yourself and education. 30-year-old self, enjoy. Just enjoy the football ride. The biggest moment in your career? Biggest moment, um, I would say, possibly making my debut um, is always huge. And representing the national team in the 5-1. The best player you've played with? Best player i played with, I would probably say two, Scolzi and Stevie Gerrard. Stevie Gerrard I played with more, so I'd probably say Stephen Gerrard. The best player you've played against? Um, toughest opponent. The thing is, the best player I've played against, uh, I would say R9. Ronaldo, um, but the toughest opponent, I would say Sol, Sol Campbell. If you can't say Messi or Ronaldo, who's the best player in the world? <sighs> that is a tough one, that. You'd have to go with um, Neymar. He's still producing it at PSG. He's still doing well, so I'd have to go with Neymar. Are you for or against VAR? I'm for VAR. But I would like it tweaked. How? I think they brought it in to do too much things, if that makes sense. Um, let's get it right for the goal line technology first. Then you move on to the next thing. And then you move on. At this moment in time, they just put it in and it's got to try and do everything and it's not getting any of it right. 
I would have just put it in and done maybe offside. But even now, you're going to argue that you're a toenail over the, <laughs> you're a toenail offside. Do we need to tweak that a little bit as well and saying you need to have clear distance at certain centimeters? Do you watch yourself on YouTube? No. Never? No. Why? You have some good goals. I know, but I've never watched my goals back. I actually watched, I did see um, the 100 goals. We have this program, 100 Premier League goals. So whoever scored 100 Premier League goals, they, they put a um, little film together for Sky. So I've watched that, but I don't watch my goals on, on YouTube. What's a book recommendation? Book recommendation. Wow. Like I said, I'm working with a guy called Io Benson. He's got a book out called The Gold Mine of Your Mind. I would recommend that one. And the only other book I'm reading at this moment in time is the UEFA book that I have for my class. So I would say The Gold Mine of Your Mind is probably the best one. A film recommendation. Film recommendation. I just watched The Banker. That was interesting. Yeah, that was a good one, actually. I quite enjoyed that. If you want to go old school, old school, old school, Shawshank Redemption. That's one of my favorites. That is a good one. If you could have dinner with any three people, past or present, and let's assume language is not a barrier, who would those three people be? I would go Bob Marley one, uh, Nelson Mandela, and probably Marcus Garvey. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? Um, but like what you're doing now is, um, uh, I would recommend people get into opening up their mind a little bit. Like I said, I've, I've been working with someone on things that you've actually been talking about with, um, how to keep a hold of some of the information that you're taking in while reading. So some people can read and they can, they can really focus on what they're doing, but some people can't. So I would guess getting someone who help you with your focus. Last one. Who do you think I should interview in this podcast? Ooh, let me think. Current players, I would say, I would, I would probably say someone like uh, Jordan Henderson or Raheem Sterling would be nice. Different backgrounds, but Jordan, Jordan's obviously from the Northeast, which isn't the most prosperous place in the world. But, you know, he's come out there and done fantastic. You know, he's gone from basically being ridiculed in some some places and then now he's Captain Marvel again which is great and who would be someone who let's say who's not a footballer but who is in one way or another involved in the football industry that's a good question it would have to be an owner or someone like that and talking about their mentality why not take someone like um, Leicester's owner yeah that'd be a good one actually yeah I know a former Leicester player who I'm going to reach out to so he can put me in touch. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> but then you know a current one as well. Yeah. Who could actually put you on the phone to him. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure that one out. Um, Emil, seriously, thank you so much. I truly appreciate you taking the time and talking about your story and sharing some amazing insights and showing that there is so much more to the man than just a footballer that he was. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me, really. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please tell a friend about it. Subscribe to it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Write a review. It will help tremendously in getting noticed. There is a second episode up now. It's with Sven-Jörn Eriksson. So check it out. 
And then from now on, it will be one new episode every Friday. Thanks again and enjoy the weekend.